Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week we have an exclusive interview on the threat from chemical and biological weapons with the National Security Advisor and Cabinet Secretary who stepped down this month. The first use of chemical weapons in Western Europe in, in a century, really, since, uh, since World War I, and we've seen with Alexei Navalny's attack that um, the Russian state has not learned the lesson. The bill designed to stop vexatious claims against military personnel and veterans has passed its second reading. This bill is moderate, it's fair, it's down the middle, and if you're on the wrong side of the lobbies tonight, you're clearly on the wrong side of history. And out mortar training with phalanx. Clear! Which was a lot better than the last time, so he's learnt from his mistake. But first, the poisoning of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has once more focused minds on the threat from chemical weapons two years after the Novichok attacks in Salisbury. It was the subject of a virtual conference at Rusi this week, addressed by Lord Sadwell, who has just stood down as Cabinet Secretary and National Security Advisor. He served under seven prime ministers, from Margaret Thatcher to Boris Johnson. I asked Mark Sadwell what lessons have been learnt from Salisbury. I think we learned several things. First, that our sense that chemical weapons were no longer uh, going to be used uh, was wrong and that they would be used even in a targeted way of this kind, as well as, of course, in places like Syria. And that was quite a shock for everyone. It was the first use of chemical weapons in Western Europe in, in a century, really, since, uh, since World War I. And we've seen with Alexei Navalny's attack that um, the Russian state has not learned the lesson. Um, what we learned ourselves in responding to Salisbury, where I think the, the response was extremely impressive, it was essentially a great example of the whole fusion doctrine approach, which was to bring together public health, uh, defence, science experience on the front line, but also link that into the criminal investigation, the intelligence investigation, and then the diplomatic and international action at the strategic level, and really required a whole of government, indeed a whole of public service uh, approach. And after that attack in Salisbury, around 30 countries expelled Russian diplomats, despite Russian denials. You mentioned the attack later on Alexei Navalny. Does that mean the response last time was just simply not enough? I think it was, it was certainly much more than the Russians expected at the time and imposed a higher price on them for the attack carried out against the Skripals here. We don't know uh, the exact uh, motive and circumstances of the Navalny attack, but of course that took place in Russia itself, although uh, Alexei Navalny, thank goodness, is recovering and recovering in Germany, the attack itself was in Russia. So we have to hope they've realised that, um, that once again the world is going to call them out on this and the use of these weapons, this kind of poison, is unacceptable wherever it takes place. Uh, but they certainly know that we will not tolerate it in the United Kingdom. Now, your talk was called from Salisbury to coronavirus. What are the links between an attack and what you describe as a natural disaster? I think yeah, we must be very careful not to overplay the overlap, really, between the two. Coronavirus was a natural phenomenon. It was a, a virus that arose out of uh, the wet markets in China, across species, uh, transmission and so on. But, of course, what it has demonstrated is that a virus or, or a biological phenomenon of this kind, which creates a public health crisis and then, of course, an economic uh, crisis that follows, demonstrates how vulnerable Western countries and societies, indeed the global system, is to uh, a disruption of this kind. And so, as national security professionals, the point I was making was not that coronavirus itself 
as a national security uh, impact, but that we need to be conscious that biological weapons, as well as chemical weapons, as well as radiological and others, which was the subject of the conference, could have a highly disruptive effect, whether deployed by a state or a terrorist group uh, or whatever, on the wider economy and society. And we need to be conscious of that as we think about national security contingency plan. And in that light, how concerned are you about hostile actors being inspired by the impact of coronavirus? Let's hope not. Again, we've got to be careful not to overplay the connection between uh, the two. And we know that hostile actors, terrorist groups uh, and others um, have, have always sought to acquire the most sophisticated weapons, whether chemical, biological, radiological or whatever. And so I'm sure they are continuing to try uh, to try to do so. And in light of bioweapons, how hard would it be to get a further agreement that's verifiable on them? Biological weapons are, are harder to, for the scientists, really, to verify than the chemical attack because they can, of course, replicate naturally occurring phenomena. And we've seen that with Ebola and other viruses of that kind. The use of anthrax, you may recall after 9-11, there were also anthrax powder was sent through the post to various people. So um, there, there is always a there is always a, a complication with diseases that occur naturally. If, for example, you know, a terrorist group puts something into something something into society through a through some kind of transmission mechanism, and if they decided not to uh, claim responsibility uh, for it, I think the key uh, here is that we continue, particularly among Western countries, to ensure that we uh, we have the right contingency plans in place that our scientists are liaising. Uh, properly, and that we are alert to the risk and ready to respond. And on the subject of the pandemic, do you think the military who are key to supporting the fight against coronavirus should become more involved again in the future? I think the military, I mean, the military played a great role in supporting the civilian authorities through the pandemic, and people have seen, you know, as, as they saw, for example, during the Olympics, soldiers uh, helping out. We, we saw them at the Olympics in 2012. We see them now at test centres and so on. They've been providing mobile testing. They've been providing a huge amount of support. Actually, the thing that the public don't see, but has been equally valuable, has been the logistic support, the planning support, the expertise that uh, defence uh, uh, generally, including defence scientists, as well as defence planners and so on, have provided in, in particular to the public health uh, authorities. And that capability is always available to us. And of course, it depends very much on the circumstances, but uh, it will need to be uh, continue to be available to government as it navigates the country through the next phases of the coronavirus crisis. Now, you led the implementation of the last Defence and Security Review in 2015. In the light of what we've been talking about, what do you think this current review should prioritise? I mean, the current review is is still uh, crystallising, but it needs to essentially needs to focus on the global situation as we now find it, and, and we are now in an era of intensified state and system competition. The coronavirus um, epidemic globally has probably intensified some of those rivalries, as we've, as we've seen, notably um, a, sh a much sharper uh, relationship now between China and the United States. We have in this hemisphere in particular the intensified efforts by the Russian state to uh, disrupt Western societies operating across all domains, not just the traditional land, sea and air, but space, cyberspace, and indeed the information space, uh, trying to disrupt uh, democratic systems and uh, uh, and politics uh, and so on, uh, and so we need you know, this. This review is going to have to be ready to deal with all of that. So the fusion doctrine that we developed and launched uh, as a result of the 2017 review will have to be the platform for this one because defence, security, national security, which now has to encompass economic security, health security, democratic security, um, will need again a whole of government effort. So there'll be big implications, of course, for. Uh, defence itself, modernisation, 
um, ensuring that we're using the very latest uh, techniques and capabilities both to have the effect we want and also reduce the risk to our own, uh, to our own forces. Uh, but there will be a much wider whole-of-government effort that will need to be brought together. What do you think is the greatest threat to UK security? I don't think there's a single one. I think, it, uh, I think there are a range of threats to our security. And of course, most of those threats aren't just to the UK security, they're to the security of the European continent and the Euro Atlantic Hemisphere and indeed uh, the globe as well. So everything from the, the potential impact of climate change and demographics and so on, um, through to uh, deliberate attacks either by hostile states by terrorist groups or indeed by serious and organised crime. And the point, the, the, the key thing with national security is you can't focus on only one threat. What you have to do is make sure that we have the capabilities in place to deal with a very wide and diverse range of threats wherever they emerge from. And just finally, how do you feel about the timing of your resignation from government and what are you going to do now? As I said at the time, I agree with the Prime Minister that when the time came to essentially split the jobs that I had combined of Cabinet Secretary and National Security Advisor, which I think was the right model for the period that I did the job, then it would make sense for me to move on. And that's what we uh, that's what we agreed. I'm chairing for government the Atlantic Futures Forum, which is essentially a, uh, an international security conference that is hosted on the HMS Queen Elizabeth, the new flagship uh, carrier. There was one we held it uh, uh, last year in Annapolis in the US. We're holding it this year in Portsmouth. And then again in next year, we'll probably be in the Far East and the Prince of Wales will probably be off the coast of the United States around the time of the 80th anniversary of the Atlantic Charter. That's a piece of work I'm going to continue doing for government. I'm also going to chair a G7 panel as we take on the presidency about global economic resilience, which relates to some of the topics we've just touched upon. And then you know, I will find a, a range of other activities in order to fill my time. Lord Zedwell there, speaking to me earlier, well, joining me now is Professor Michael Clark, the former Director General of RUSI, and Christopher Lee, our Defence Analyst. Uh, Michael Clark, listening to what he says there, it sounds like preparing for future threats, defending the country with all the security issues he, he mentions has never been more complicated. Yes, it does, uh, because Britain is a, is a modern digitised society. And as Sir Mark said there, the threats range from uh, natural disasters like floods or pandemics, in this case, through serious crime, terrorism, right through to threats to the homeland itself. So the spectrum of challenges has never been greater. And you know, the government recognised this in uh, 2008 when it produced the National Risk Register and it put, put those risks into three tiers. And of course, in those risks was a pandemic and there was a big exercise to test for a pandemic preparedness in 2016. The, the problem is that as we're writing down the risks and doing something about them are two different things. And you could argue that all of our recognition of the problem of pandemics wasn't adequate to dealing with COVID as it actually hit us because we were preparing for a major flu pandemic and COVID is something much, much worse than flu. And so um, all states, all West European states suffer from this big spectrum of security challenges. We're better than most at recognizing them, but it doesn't make us better than most at preparing for them because that requires resources and a lot of political commitment. Christopher Lee, on the subject of uh, biological weapons and the biological threat, how great do you think it realistically is? And are people really looking to COVID as inspiration for future attacks? I don't think they're looking to COVID. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's quite a different thing in terms of how you make a military assessment. But it's, de it's demonstrated that the damage that can be done, hasn't it? 
uh, it's demonstrated a damage, but not necessarily from biological weapons, which would be in a in a, in, a, in a more confined area uh, for a different purpose. And also, when you got two countries, which ostensibly uh, would be at war at one time or another, and that's either through terrorism or through uh, conventional ways of going to war. If you look at what the, the work that, that was happening at the United Nations uh, Disarmament uh, Group in Geneva, and we go back to the 1980s in this, and they pre presented uh, a paper for America, uh, American uh, politics. And it was this. The biological weapon is on the way to becoming the cheap version of a nuclear weapon. In other words, small countries, small organizations even, uh, can make one, can make enough for them to use. Uh, and the effects of it can be at its, just as catastrophic as a nuclear weapon. I think we're still in that sort of spot. And also there was the other part of it which they were insisting on. It's all right to get an agreement on what you should do. Um, and, but what do you do if, you're, if your own uh, political system won't ratify it? And that was the case in the United States when they declared uh, that they, they would sign the, um, the chemical and, uh, and biological uh, agreement. But Congress never ratified it. And it didn't ratify it until much later. Uh, and it took a lot of political sort of shenanigans over two decades to actually get the Americans to do it. And it wasn't until that much later that they started uh, destroying about 100,000 chemical munitions stored at Bluegrass, uh, the army depot in mm. Kentucky. And that was the, you know, and it took that long. So that's the size of the, that's the difference between um, COVID. COVID, the whole, the whole world appears to be trying to get getting on top of it. Uh, biological weapons, you don't believe the same thing. Michael Clark, um, you suggested earlier that the government, that we've always sort of been on the back foot when you say that we had an exercise for a pandemic, but it was the wrong thing we looked at. How, how confident are you that we're actually learning from past mistakes and being able to correctly predict or foresee what we're going to need in the future when it comes to the integrated review? Well, there's always a difference between recognising the lessons and actually learning them, which means institutionalising what you're going to do. And what's taken us by surprise in the case of COVID, I think, is the cascading effects. Nobody quite understood the sheer ubiquity of human contact. I mean, this was, you know, this, this arose in China in uh, late November, December. It was clear to the world it was a pandemic in uh, early February. And by early May, people in the remotest Amazonian villages, right deep in the Amazon, west of Manaus, were deeply affected by it. Nobody could have predicted that sort of sheer human contact. And that leads to tremendously cascading effects. So, you know, we've, we've now learned that if schools are closed, lots of other things happen. If, if bars and restaurants are closed, lots of other things happen. Our society is so complex that it doesn't take much to disrupt it in major ways. And if there's one big set of lessons coming out of this, which future governments are going to get, get hold of, it is how to, as it were, manage the social effects of small-scale disruptions, which cascade into bigger things. Gentlemen, stay with us. Now, a bill that the government says aims to tackle vexatious claims against armed forces while on operation overseas has been voted through to the next stage in Parliament. Our Westminster correspondent, Laura Macon-Ishwood, joins me now. Laura, a seeming win for the Ministry of Defence. 
Well, yeah, the Overseas Operations Bill was voted through with 331 eyes to 77 noes, even after some pretty fierce exchanges in the Commons. The Defence Secretary says this legislation aims to protect personnel and veterans from repeated or unnecessary investigations related to action overseas. And he blamed third parties who he alleges are looking to make money out of the military. We will investigate and, if necessary, prosecute service personnel who break the law. But what we will not accept is the vexatious hounding of veterans and our armed forces by ambulance-chasing lawyers motivated not by the search for justice but for their own crude financial or financial enrichment. Well, this comes three years after the Defence Select Committee called the Iraq Historical Allegations Team, a group set up to help deal with claims of wrongdoing by British forces, a failure after opening thousands of cases, none ending in prosecution. It was closed down and ministers insist this new bill will offer a triple lock of protections, including a presumption against prosecution for alleged offences committed more than five years ago. However, it's not without controversy. There are a number of MPs and organisations concerned that this legislation could impact personnel negatively, putting time limits on them bringing their own cases against the MOD, and there are even suggestions it could be in contravention of international law. The MOD denies all those claims, but Labour's Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy says ministers have got important parts of this bill badly wrong. This bill, Madam Deputy Speaker, calls into question Britain's proud commitment to the Geneva Convention, our duty as a permanent five member of the United Nations to uphold international law and our moral authority to require the conduct of other nations meet the standards set by those international conventions. Well, the SNP's defence spokesperson, Stuart MacDonald, claimed the bill wouldn't necessarily protect personnel or veterans at all. This exposes UK forces more to the International Criminal Court. And I can tell you what will happen then, Madam Deputy Speaker. Tory backbencher after Tory backbencher will be on their feet complaining about foreign judges intervening in UK justice. Well, Veterans Minister Johnny Mercer, one of the most visible campaigners for this new legislation, said the government was the first to actually introduce laws for the forces, and he encouraged members to vote it through. This bill is moderate, it's fair, it's down the middle, and if you're on the wrong side of the lobbies tonight, you're clearly on the wrong side of history. Well, he got his wish, but there's still the Lords to go. Laura, thank you. Well, still with us is Professor Michael Clark, the former Director General of RUSI, and Christopher Lee, our Defence Analyst. Uh, Michael, this bill has proved controversial, but now goes to committee stage. Do you expect amendments? Uh, there may be, um, because a lot of people are fairly unhappy about this triple lock that the government talks about, because it, it is controversial in terms of international law. And although I think a lot of people are very sympathetic to what the bill is trying to do, there is scepticism that it is going to have the right effect. And it may be, I have to say my own view, is that this is, a, it, this is one of those examples where hard cases make bad law in trying to react to what was a very specific set of difficult cases arising from Iraq and Afghanistan and the whole IHAT, the uh, historic investigation of historic uh, cases uh, problem in the MOD, all of that were, were created a series of very difficult cases. And when you, when you then produce a law specifically to deal with something that happened four and five years ago, the danger is it's bad law. So I suspect there'll be a lot of amendments, but the government seems to have a sort of a fair wind behind it. So my feeling is it will only really be amended when it gets to the Lords, where there will be a lot of scepticism. And then, of course, the Lords can only delay bills and suggest amendments. They can't impose them.
And Christopher, there's been concern, but also great support for this bill. Yeah, and don't forget that when you get to the Lords, you haven't got a Tory majority. And that's very important if you really want to uh, sort of bulldoze or something through. This law is, or this would-be law, is something which has got general backing because there's an instinct to protect our brave boys, that sort of thing. And when people think about it, they mostly think about the army. And so there's every support for it to go through, and the noises off at the moment are well heard. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time today. Christopher, stay with us. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitrad. Now, reservists and regulars from the Duke of Lancaster's regiment have fired mortars for the first time in their training. The weapon makes up 80% of the battalion's firepower and requires weeks of training before getting close to the weaponry. Kirsty Chambers reports on Warcop training area. Uh, uh, yeah. It's day one of firing for these reservists and regulars from the Duke of Lancaster's regiment. But before they're out on the range, there's time for a quick ammunition refresher. And then all you're going to do is you're going to just check the ammunition round, make sure that there's no cracks, making sure that the cushion cap has not been struck. Reservist Lance Corporal Macaulay Rogerson and Kingsman Philip Munich from One Lanks are first on the range. All right, happy, to be honest. I'm looking forward to it. But nervous, but excited at the same time. Colour Sergeant Lewis Royal, the senior permanent staff instructor for Four Lanks, talks me through what the soldiers are doing. So the number one thing's told to fire, he's going to pull his pin, muzzle cover off, place the round down, and then he's... There's shot one. Working in teams of three, the safety staff are ready to step in in case of a complication. Clear! Clear! So that wasn't meant to happen? No. So he's just had an ang fire. So basically what's happening, he's got nervous, he's put the bomb into the barrel, he's just got stuck at the top, so the safety staff's just stepped in. It's just one of them things that happens. It wasn't anything unsafe or anything like that. He was just a little bit nervous. Safety staff stepped in and then they'll just correct it. So the number two's going to fire now, as normal. Two fire! Clear! which was a lot better than the last time, so he's learnt from his mistake. After that, it was plain sailing for these soldiers as they fired the 81mm mortar. For all of them here, it was a test to complete and qualify with the weaponry. So how was it? It's definitely a good experience, something new. I'm obviously being in regular, we'll be able to fire these more often. But it was different. Obviously, you don't actually see where it goes until 30 seconds later, but yeah, it was good. The section is still in training, and here the instructors can quickly and efficiently iron out any issues. WO2 Stephen McConnell is the second in command of the mortar training. He says he's happy with the outcome. There's still a lot of improvements to be made, um, but overall, um, certainly their attitude and the momentum um, and the drills being safe, they're where we think they should be. That first round down is, is quite nerve-wracking for most people. And we did see those nerves at points, didn't we? We did, yeah. Um, not always best to be seen on camera, but no, they're there. Uh, and certainly the guys that have got experience will notice their mistakes, and that is why we have the safety on top of the motor guys. Three, 
Four lengths have been leading the exercise, which meant training had to be condensed from a three-week course down to two to allow for the reservist's civilian commitments. The group will now continue their training to qualify in firing the mortar. That report by Kirsty Chambers. Now, air and space power is at the heart of a new research institute launched this week. Based in the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the Freeman Air and Space Institute, FASI, is dedicated to generating knowledge and understanding of air and space power issues in defence and security. One of its directors is Dr David Jordan. What it's for is to look at the development of contemporary air and space power and the issues surrounding it. The reason for it being necessary is that air and space power have tended to get relatively little coverage, particularly in academia, compared to maritime power and land power. A lot of what we understand about air power is derived from our historical understanding, particularly from the Second World War. And there seems to be less coverage these days relating to the vital role that air and space power plays. So the Institute's role is to contribute to the ongoing debate and understanding relating to the way in which air and space power are important to security issues these days. And you launched the Institute this week and presented your research at that launch. What was the nature of it? My research uh, relates to uh, Britain and air defence, both the air defence of the UK homeland and potentially for British troops deployed overseas. The essence of the research is that there's always a danger when looking at air defence, particularly in an era when there's no obvious threat, despite the frequent flights by Russian long-range aviation. There's always a temptation to look at equipment and say, well, do we need it? And that question is often used as a means of covering for potential cutbacks in defence reviews. And we've seen it throughout history where new, if I may, sort of shiny, bright technology, uh, at the moment things like cyber, uh, remotely piloted systems, artificial intelligence, they're presented as being the answer to everything. Uh, and to to obtain that sort of capability, you see cuts being made uh, in things like fighter squadrons, radar stations, um, surface-to-air missile capability. You see those go. And it almost seems predetermined in many instances where a defence review will remove those capabilities and you then need them for the next operation that you send British forces to carry out. And what are the main issues facing air and space power, both nationally and globally? In terms of air, is it about that threat of cuts or is, is there more to it as well? I think one of the undeniable factors relating to air and space power, of course, is that it's very technologically sophisticated. And of course, in the current climate where we have as yet unknown financial consequences from the COVID-19 pandemic, there is always a risk that the technology will make air and space power vulnerable to cuts, not just in the United Kingdom, of course, but around the world. But one of the challenges here is that we are so heavily dependent, particularly in the realms of space, on the sort of things that we see used to deliver timing for bank ATMs, uh, GPS, uh, your satellite navigation systems. Those are obviously vital components of modern life. So there's always a risk that you might think about 
reducing the ability to use space, which would have some very deleterious effects. Likewise, air power, one of the challenges relating to air, of course, is that it gives governments a whole range of options as to how they go about their business. Um, it enables governments to intervene fairly rapidly. There are numerous cases of this, of course, throughout history. It enables governments to participate fully in a variety of international coalitions if, if they wish to. Now, of course, the army and the navy also play a really important part here, and it, that's not to downplay their role either. But in terms of air, there is a very clear recognition now, I think, amongst most commentators that if you try to fight a modern war even against a relatively unsophisticated adversary if you try doing it without air power it's going to take you much longer to achieve the sort of outcomes that you want and potentially a much greater cost both in terms of money and more importantly in terms of human life and christopher this week the head of the russian space agency claimed venus is a russian planet they would, wouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, what it was. Uh, there were some rumours around that some chem you know, on chemical observations that it's just possible that way out in the atmosphere, if that's what it's called, of Venus, there could be the origins of life as we generally know it. Uh, no Star Wars, just general possibility. So the Russians immediately came on and said, uh, well, it's inevitably that um, because of the work that we did back in the 70s around Venus, um, that, that Venus is ours. So <laughs> that's it. What nobody's asked is it the work they did, what did they leave behind in the atmosphere of Venus? Mm. Uh, and what do they know that nobody else knows? But it's the sort of thing that the that space scientists actually get really worked up about, and that's what's happening at the moment. Well, what a thought. That's it from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.